For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Oh, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Hope you are well wherever you and yours are. Thank you so much for joining us. Try to do what we always do, turn down the noise on the news cycle, talk about what's important, skip things that aren't, try to discern our times just a little bit better, both with politics and culture and everything else that might be going on in the headlines. But we got to start with some nonsense, unfortunately. We try not to talk about conspiracy theories too much. Now, there's whole websites and news organizations that just do chasing these things down. They change so often. There's so many of them. It's kind of a waste of time to go through them individually. But there's an overall theme one I think we need to touch on because we're just seeing it and it's reaching the apex of silliness if it wasn't such a serious business. Now, in the post-COVID world, we have these folks that are virulent anti-vaxxers. Now, let's just pause here for a second. There's a thing about being skeptical that is healthy. There's a thing about questioning things that is healthy. And then there's the latest theory where DeMar Hamlin, which we covered here, if you missed our talk uh, with our good friend Brandon Phoenix on that episode and what happened with DeMar Hamlin, please go back and watch it. But now you have the apex of stupidity where DeMar Hamlin actually died and they brought in a body double because he died of a vaccination on the field because of heart. You've seen the idiotic hashtags of died suddenly. You've seen the Facebook posts, the Instagram posts of people shaking all this nonsense. Listen. Let's go through this real slowly on the slow path for those of you from Logan and elsewhere. If you are anti-vax, whatever that term means to you, just kind of listen to me for a second. Let me walk through this. There is such a thing as being healthily skeptical of things. Listen, when the COVID vaccines came out, I'm one of those. I have a very complicated medical history. I have some very serious health problems. That's why I do this instead of some other things that I used to do because I can sit in my home and if I don't need to go take a nap or I need to go to the doctor, whatever, I can do so. I had very serious and very complicated medical situation. So when these vaccines came out, I talked to my doctors about it. I talked to multiple ones of my doctors about it. And the answer I got was, we don't know. They don't have any data for people like me with my specific needs and issues. They didn't know what the results would be. They didn't know what the side effects would be. All they could do was talk to me through the vaccine, go, here's what we think we know. Here's what we do know. Here's what we've tested. Here's what we've not tested. And I appreciated their candor. So when it came time to decide whether or not I did the vaccine, that's the information I had because I didn't go online. I didn't listen to threads. I didn't watch YouTube videos. I talked to my doctors about it. And they all said, we're not sure. Here's the pros and cons. Make a decision for yourself. And I did. I ended up taking the vaccine. I've got the Pfizer one because that's what the VA was offering at the time. I got one booster. I'm probably not going to get any other further boosters 
for other reasons. Now, that's me. That's my decisions. That's what I made. You need to do the same, but I would encourage you to have the same process. Listen to your doctors, talk to your doctors, inform yourself, and go forward. You don't want to have the vaccine. Fine. Here's where this goes in the la-la land, though. Now we got people going to school board meetings demanding that we never have any mandatory vaccines for children at all. Folks, grow the hell up. We have polio almost completely eradicated, one of the great scientific achievements of mankind. Polio is making a comeback because people aren't getting their vaccines. Things like measles, things like smallpox, people are losing their minds over this stuff. There's a difference between being healthily skeptical and falling down the conspiratorial hole of everybody that dies suddenly, it was because of the vaccine, or that we have an NFL player having a body double and he really died because it fits my conspiracy theory. This is supremely unhealthy and it's nonsense and it's time for good folks to stop tolerating it. You are not entitled to people's timelines. You are not entitled to their Facebook page. You're not entitled to their, their Instagram posts. You're not entitled to my Twitter timeline. So if you're going to go off the deep end on conspiracy theories, not healthy skepticism, not here's the data. Are they rushing the data, especially something like the mRNA vaccines that were brand new? Yeah, there's honest questions to have because we've never really done them on mass scale before. If you want to talk about the mandates and things like that, we can discuss that, too. But the out and out conspiracy theories that we're putting nano chips in because Bill Gates is a lizard person, this kind of nonsense. It's time to start just calling the herd a little bit here. What you need to do is on your social media, it's time to start unfollowing people. It's time to start muting people. If folks want to talk about conspiratorial nonsense, just stop listening to them, stop platforming them, stop arguing with them, just cut them off. Oh, I know, free speech. No, you're not entitled to my timeline. That's not free speech. Free speech is the government not being able to dictate things. And there's a debate on some of this where that comes in too. But if we start clamping down on our social media a little bit and quit tolerating this nonsense that the lizard people are putting nanochips and vaccines, the real out and out crazy stuff that Damar Hamlin is a body double, that the World Health Organization and Fauci are out to get us. Listen, if you want to criticize Fauci, there's plenty of criticism to be had there. I've been critical of him, too. The World Health Organization, you can miss me with that one every time I criticize something about a vaccine and an anti-vaxxer nut job. What about Fauci and the W? Listen, we've covered the World Health Organization on this program the way it should be covered, about the funding, about the undue influence of China, about the how it's a giant bureaucracy who was completely revealed by COVID as being completely one-way traffic on PR instead of being the one thing it's supposed to be preparing for a worldwide epidemic. It, it failed completely. We were covering it from the very beginning. We've had experts on about it. What did you do? Are you just using it as a buzzword? World Health Organization is a boogeyman or you want to actually talk about the problems with the organization? Same thing with Fauci. He's a bureaucrat. Yes, he's a doctor. He's a bureaucrat. He acted like a bureaucrat. I think he embarrassed himself when he got on TV and made himself look bad, but that's neither here nor there. Fauci isn't controlling your life or dictating your life. You want to talk about the mandates? There's a debate to be had there. But this anti-vax nonsense that's getting people killed, these idiotic videos where people are clearly faking the shaking and all this nonsense, that's an insult to people who really do have long COVID problems. The very small minority who really do have reactions to these vaccines. It's time to quit tolerating it as a people. No, we don't have to ban people. No, I don't think we should mandate it. We should have some good old-fashioned shunning. You have a right to not take a vaccine if you are not want to. And society has a right to say you keep your unvaccinated self over there where you can't make everybody else sick. Sorry, that's the harsh truth of it. And we should do the same on our social media. 
not the honestly skeptical people. They have a role. We should have honest debates about things. But if you're going to do lizard people and nanoprobes and microchips and Bill Gates is out to get me, it's time for you to not have a voice in the public square. Sorry, you're not entitled to my timeline and I'm not wasting my time on you. And the more and more people that start doing that with their social media, the less and less we'll deal with this. We can also go to the data, by the way. We've talked about this with our friend Michael Siegel. A lot of the anti-vax stuff comes from the same few, uh, about a dozen or so organizations and really high-profile people. And that's the vast majority of that. And then it just gets shared and retweeted and so on and so forth. It's not very organic, but a lot of the wackadoos are grabbing onto it and they're getting converts. And it's bad. It's bad for everybody's health. It's bad for our society. It's bad for our discourse. It's bad for you individually. Do a little self-policing. The real wackadoo conspiracy folks, start cutting them out of your social media. They're not going to bring anything good to it. And you can say whatever you want, even if you agree with them on 80 or 90 percent of everything else they say. It's unhealthy. It's bad. There's nothing good going to come from it. Just stop listening to them. Mute them. Unfollow them. Don't follow their Facebook page, their Instagram, their Twitter. There's nothing good going to come out of it. Best thing you need to vaccinate your mind from is nonsense like that. And you can do it with a few clicks. Doesn't cost you anything. It'll gain you a whole lot more perspective. If that offends you, send us an email about it. More Hurtel right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. All right, folks, it's story time with Dr. Michael, Dr. Michael Siegel. He's a certified scientist a couple times over. He's a good friend of ours, and he is the most appearances of any guest on Herd Tell because he's right real smart, and he's going to answer questions for us because we're actually going to talk science today, buddy, for a change. Hey. How, what a concept. Talk science with the scientist. Uh, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, and we have to believe all scientists, so we have to believe him. Uh, let's start with an easy one here. Since it's in your background, I was going to ask you about it anyway. James Webb Telescope, I know it's one of your absolute favorite things in the entire universe, literally in this case. Uh, there's some talk. They found themselves some ice out in deep space. Is that what we're hearing right here? Yeah. So um, for those of you who are on the YouTube, you can see the image behind me. Others of you can Google it. Um, they came up with a really beautiful image of a star forming region. 
Um, so what you see behind me is the, the orange light is existing stars shining through. And the blue light is where uh, you have new stars being formed, protostars. And what they're doing is using the background stars to see what's in that cloud. And we're finding ices of carbon dioxide and other elements and so forth. Stuff that we knew was there, but uh, is nice to confirm in these uh, forming stars. This is one of JBWST's primary missions is to pierce the veil of dust and look into how stars are forming. Because when they form, they're shrouded in these cocoons of dust which keep optical light from leaking out. So we can't, it's very hard to see what's in there. And so JWC is, is looking through those almost like X-ray vision and gonna show us a lot of the details on how stars form. Yeah, I find this interesting because people talk about, you know, there's some themes in space, you know, space, people that cover space for journalism, they have narratives just like political journalists or lifestyle journalists. One of the narratives of especially the last 15, 20 years is this continuous look for, you know, building blocks of life, water molecules, things like this. For somebody at our level that doesn't understand what a big deal that is, this isn't finding the alien civilization is going to show up with a spacecraft. This is just building blocks, bacteria, things like this that we're looking for in the universe. It sounds like small stuff, but scientifically, these would be ginormous leaps in our understanding, right? Yeah, and if you want to understand the basic building blocks of life, you have to understand the basic building blocks of stars and the star systems, that the planetary systems that form around them. So the more we learn about those early stages, the more we learn about stars, and that does ultimately feed into uh, what we can expect for planets in our, in our universe. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. All right, something else space-related has been going on. I find this really interesting, though, they're talking now with the James Webb stuff. I don't know if this is a fair way to put it, but because you've talked about it on this program many times, is this thing exceeding expectations? Because I know you said, you know, this is going to be the next two or three generations worth of data everybody's going to do. The stuff we're reading now, and I'm a neophyte on this, so you explained to me, folks seem like this is even exceeding people's expectations, even at this early stage of the data. I would say the the uh, it is exceeded specs definitely. Um, what we do is when we design a mission, uh, we set the expectations. You know, I've been involved in this in smaller missions where you put together. A, they send out a call for proposals, and they say we have maybe two launch windows. I mean, JWST is a huge mission, so that was a different thing. But when you're talking about smaller missions, they have say we have two launch windows, and you put together a profile of a mission. This is what we're going to build. This is what we're going to accomplish. This is the questions we're trying to answer. And they will get maybe 30, 40 of those proposals. Then they'll trim them down to maybe five or six that get a little bit of money to do further investigation to show that the technology is feasible and they're going to be able to answer these questions. And then they down select to two. So JDSC works on it, worked on a different cycle because it was a huge mission, you know, a flagship mission. But it still has the same kind of process where you start out, this is what we're, these are the questions we're hoping to answer. These are the specs the mission is going to meet. These are the kind of data we're going to get. And that and that's sort of your minimum profile. But it is not unusual for us to exceed those profiles because we want to be conservative. We don't want to put the thing up there and say, well, it's not meeting expectations. 
So we usually try to set fairly realistic expectations and hope that we exceed them. And in the case of JDOST, it seems to be exceeding those expectations. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, this is going to be a science-heavy segment because usually we end up talking about culture and politics. This will dip into that just a little bit, but it's something we've talked about a lot. Um, when you were on the program, you were kind of one of our go-to guys during COVID and that sort of thing. We talked about this a lot. There was a definitive, whatever you thought of everything else, there was definitively a communication problem between the scientific community and the general public. I think there's just no arguing that there's a communication problem there. They don't communicate well. So interesting thing out of UK, I'm going to link to this, talks about the pitfalls of it. And this seems like just common sense, but scientists, they got to go study it and come back and then present common sense as something new to find out, right? People that have more belief in science actually tend to be a little bit more humble about what they don't know. People who don't believe in science tend to be a little more standoffish and know-it-all-ish. How do we start working on the communication barrier between the general public and scientists, whether it's academic or government or whatever, obviously they don't speak the same language. Obviously there's a knowledge gap because you have somebody that's been in a field 20, 30 years and just somebody that's Googling it They're They've got, you know, just a barrier there. But as we found out during COVID and we found out during other crises, those two groups of people have to communicate to each other. And when they don't, bad stuff happens, including during a virus, people die. What do we start doing to make this a little bit better? I think it's, more of a cultural change that you're looking for that people value certainty you know if you present what you're saying with certainty even if you're wrong people tend to trust you you know this is a problem uh, one of the things i i kind of read about a lot is forensic science and there's been a crisis in forensic science where many of the techniques that people were using to convict people are now turning out not to be very reliable but when those scientists go to a jury and say, I absolutely know that this is the pliers that cut that wire. That sounds better than someone who said, within a reasonable degree of certainty, it's consistent with this and so forth. So I think it's a cultural change of realizing that uncertainty and caveats are not the language of ignorance or weakness. They are the language of investigation. They are the language of figuring things out that we have to have a better way of expressing that this is what we know to the best of our knowledge. And that is always subject to change. I mean, there are some things that we're really certain of. There are other things that we're mostly certain of, and there are some things that are still in question. I think uh, with the COVID example, we uh, early on, we thought that this spread through what, what are called fomites, little you know, things that contaminated surfaces and so forth, and that you could catch it from that. We told everyone to wash their hands and so forth. And it was reasonable advice based on what we knew at the time. But now we don't think that's a way that COVID spreads very well. It's mostly airborne. And so that I think that having that communicating to the public that this is what we think we know now based on this evidence. And if that is updated, if our knowledge changes, we will let you know and know, you know why our, our information is changing, that we have that honesty and communication of bringing people, you're, you're almost like bringing people into the process of science, of saying, you know, here, this is, this is what it's like. This is, this, this is the uncertainties. This is what we know. This is what we're figuring out. And, and having them understand that this is a process, not a series of answers.
Yeah, Michael Siegel joining us. We're talking science with him as we often do. Okay, this one's kind of related. This comes out of USC, an institution of some note for various reasons. They're talking about, and we'll link to this piece as well, they're talking about science is political because people are political. Now, that sounds like another common sense statement, but there is this thing. We find this in academics. We find this in education. We find this in religion other things. You can't just slap something like science on something and automatically make it this magical thing that's completely unbiased. Do we lose focus sometimes? I think we did this during COVID a lot of, oh, the science, the science. Well, no, science is people. Those are people doing it. Is that one of those perspectives we need to keep when we're dealing with things like science and scientists, especially when it comes to things like new studies or new drugs or new discoveries? These are people, and the people factor has to be factored in here somewhere, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it, and one of the things I like to say is that when you cross science with politics, the result is not to scientize the politics, it's to politicize the science. And it's very difficult to keep that out. I mean, I try to, when I've talked about COVID and so forth, state my biases up front. But one of the things, and you know, Dr. Fauci talked about this, was science often informs debates, but many of these debates over science extend beyond that into things like morality and balancing things like when you're talking about the COVID response, balancing the economy and education and trying to keep people from dying and so forth. Uh, so I think you, there's a tendency to think that one perspective, because it has a favorite a, a alliance with certain science is better than other any other, but you, you have to remember that there are always other factors that are at play. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Look, we could spend, people spend a lifetime studying this kind of stuff. Where does science stop? Where does morality stop? Where does scientific belief and religious belief or metaphysics or whatever you want to call it, people spend whole lifetimes trying to figure that stuff out. What, what's just kind of like a, a guide rule when you start getting it? Something's like, okay, well, here's the science and then here's where the morality starts. For just a lay person, that line's always going to be gray and it's going to have a spectrum to it. But what's just kind of a guideline you've always tried to adhere to? Or when you're teaching like first year students or somebody like that, that's just introducing into these sciences like, hey, yeah, morality and science are not the same thing, but here's where they start to overlap and just realize this is where the overlapping is starting to happen. There's a quote I use, I think I've used it on your show as well, from uh, one of the Indiana Jones movies where he says, uh, archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. It's truth you're interested in. The philosophy class is just down the hall. You know, you, you have to focus on where are you talking about facts and where are you talking about judgment? Uh, I, you know, we've talked about this in politics before that you say you take one of the most contentious debates in our society, abortion. Science can tell you where certain milestones are reached for fetal development. Science can tell you what the risk profile is for pregnant women and so forth. But ultimately, you're talking about a moral judgment of when does the fetus have a right to live? When does the woman have a right to control her body? That is a moral judgment. So the further you get away from fact, the more you're getting into other things like philosophy and religion and politics, and the further you are, are from getting into science. And there are some debates where science doesn't have answers. I mean, the, the abortion debate, like I said, is a perfect example where you're talking about moral questions. And you can't have science say this is what more, more moral than the other thing. I, 
people say science is amoral. I don't quite think that's the case, but it has a moral limitations. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Okay, here's a popular one. A couple people were asking about this one, so we'll ask you about it. Uh, this is almost a <laughs> almost a pet peeve of mine, but the studies say. So we see all these news stories of the studies say, and they never link to the story, and they never link to the study, and then we can't read the studies. Look, studies are like a lot of things. There's good ones, there's bad ones, there's paid-for ones, there's people honestly trying to overcome truth. Give folks from the science perspective as a certified scientist, how to weed through when it's just the studies say, because that that's become kind of a, a crutch for news reports. They just say the study says, but that doesn't really tell us anything about the study, let alone anything else, does it? No, the, for when you're online, I will ignore any resource that doesn't link to the actual study because nine times out of 10, when I find the study, They've, they're misquoting it or misrepresenting it. Um, things to watch out for are, did they talk to the scientists who actually did the study to confirm that? Um, I've had experience with science journalists, I mean, not on anything contentious, but on, uh, on things like astronomy. And the good ones call you, they confirm it, they send you the story to say, you know, is this right, what I said here, and so forth. If they're quoting the scientists, that's usually a good sign. Another sign, and this is more in the political arena than the journalistic arena, if someone says all the studies say, you can bet your bottom dollar that all the studies do not say that. Maybe most of the studies say, maybe the consensus of the studies say that, but you always get outlier studies. You know, if you flip a coin 20 times, odds are you'll get 10 heads and 10 tails, but that's not going to happen every time. Maybe you get 15 heads just because of the luck. Same thing is true of studies. When you study things, sometimes you get bad results. And it's not because you did anything wrong. It's not because you're fraudulent. It's just because you got a bad set of data. It just happens. And so many of these issues, we try to study over and over again. One of the things to look for are what they call meta studies, where they take a whole bunch of studies of an issue and put them together and try to get a consensus sense of what they're looking at. Um, we talked last year about the science on gun control and the RAND Corporation did this meta study where they took hundreds of studies and they narrowed it down to the ones that were the highest quality and said, okay, when we combine these, what do they say? You can always find a study that will support whatever point you want to make. But when you look at the consensus of studies, when you look at multiple studies, that's when the truth comes out. And especially when you're talking about kind of contentious issues, a lot of times it's difficult to get the truth that you're looking at a very small signal in a very large population. And so the more studies you have, the more data you have, the more certain you are of your conclusions. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. Part of that is, this is just where you got to have a little bit of a grown folk talk. Again, science isn't like, it's like education, like religion, whatever, just slapping science on it doesn't make it science, right? Mm -hmm. Research has money involved. Research has big money involved in it. Uh, there's jobs on the line, there's futures on the line, there's careers, there's reputations. Is it not fair to ask where these studies come from, who's funding them, who's behind them, where did they come from? Just like we would, you know, we would try out a product, we would check a political figure, you know, where's his funding come from, who's backing him? There, there should be some room for some healthy skepticism of science and the scientific process because, and you've said this on this show many, many times, Science is a lot of other things. The more transparent it is, the more you're probably getting a better product from that scientist or the scientific study, right? Yep, and most journals now require disclosure of funding sources. Uh, when I publish a paper 
Um, I'm just saying it was funded by the NSF and NASA, but with health studies and so forth, you do have to disclose that. There was a very big controversy early on in the pandemic where a study claimed that COVID was way less lethal than anyone was saying, and we could open up, everyone had herd immunity and so forth. And the study turned out to be badly flawed, but there was a controversy because they did not disclose that they had gotten some funding from the founder of JetBlue, who definitely wanted things to reopen. And that's not necessarily meaning they did bad science. They, you know, maybe that funding didn't affect their results at all, but you have to disclose so people can take that into consideration when they uh, consider what your results are. Michael Siegel. Okay, science sometimes brings out nefarious things. Let's just be fair about that, especially technology things. You are at an institution of higher learning, so this is a good thing for you to ask. The AI-driven stuff, the chat GT, all this sort of thing where AI can, and and it's still wonky enough that somebody like you and me who actually write semi-professionally, at least, you know, on a, on a higher level of being published, you know, we could still look at that and say that, okay, something's off, this is wonky, but it's getting close. And it's probably going to get closer in the future. You're at an institution of higher learning. I got to think this is a topic of discussion of what we're going to do about this. This has a lot of ramifications. You just said it. Study says you can get a study to say anything. Well, if we can pop out 40 studies a week through AI, now we're going to have a flood problem of bad information. I got to think this is a topic of discussion in the scientific community. You're on that side of the fence. Is it a topic and what are people proposing to do about it? I don't think it's so much of a topic for scientific publications uh, because, you know, you you only have so much data to go around. So popping that out is not going to help you so much. It is a big concern right now in education circles where people are going to be able to get basically AI generated essays and term papers that will be indistinguishable from what was written by a human. And how do you fight that? Um, I've, I've, uh, jokingly suggested we're going to have to go back to oral exams for everything, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, what I, in education, what I usually do is I have, uh, I give my tests at, at a testing center where they have computers that aren't on the internet and they have to secure their phones and so forth. And, uh, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, but ultimately this is a battle that we're going to have to fight in, in higher ed to, basically keep people from letting the computers do their learning for them. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. This is a little bit more of a meta question, but I wanted to ask you about it because we're starting to hear some of this. Again, this is a post, look, COVID changed a lot of things in the scientific community because a lot of people paid attention to science for the first time in a long time, right? That's good, mm-hmm. bad, and different, but that that sunlight revealed darkness and shadow both, right? science is always going to be academic heavy. It's always going to lean towards government research because that's where the money is. There's there's just, you know, paths in science just like any other career field. There does seem to be a discussion and there does seem to be some growing movement that we've really lost some community-based science and that there's more local level, maybe state level, maybe, you know, major city level stuff that could be done scientifically. 
And just like media, just like education, like a lot of things, there's been this nationalization and we're losing some community science. Is that a legitimate concern? Because it makes a lot of sense of like, look, there's just some communities that need some scientific research in those communities. It's more organic. This, again, would probably come through the academic field. But just what are your thoughts on that? That's a, that's a tricky one. Most of the funding has to come from the federal government because you you are often talking about big projects that are hard to fund. But there are a lot of little grants and little programs that are run by at, at the state level, at the university level, and at the private level that can help fund students and so forth. And there's been particular emphasis recently on putting money towards uh, women and underrepresented minorities uh, being able to do science with grants and uh, funding for graduate students that it's available specifically uh, to advance those communities. So I, I think that we are moving more towards a, something that's community oriented, but it's always going to be tricky because when you're talking about like JDBST, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar mission. That's something that can only be funded at the federal level. All right, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. All right, here's another question that somebody had, and I think this is actually a really good one. Um, for the last, I don't know, probably last 15, 10, 15, 20 years or so, STEM's been a big push for uh, secondary education going into college. We need to get more kids into STEM. We need to get more elementary programs into STEM. We need to have a STEM pipeline in the universities. We see the numbers out of other countries, especially places like China, which, look, numerically, we're just not going to be able to compete with them. They can pump out a thousand scientists, every one of ours. But there's been this big push for STEM. Has that gotten a little too buzzwordy? And should we maybe retool our branding on how we're trying to get folks into the sciences, however you want to say that? STEM's a good acronym. I'm not knocking it individually, but we just used it for so much. Maybe it's kind of losing its, uh, maybe losing the buzz on it a little bit. Do we need to kind of rebrand? Look, the military changes its recruiting every so often. Schools change their logos. The NFL changes logos six times a season. Does science need a new branding other than just we need more STEM students, do you think? I don't think so. Um, I'd, I'd actually disagree a little bit there because it's it's becoming just – I've watched with my own kids. It's becoming part of their background that they just expect science and, and engineering education to be – part of the warp and weft of education. And I see it in undergrads that they have a science requirement and they're not fighting it or trying to look for easy classes as much as they did when I was in college. And I've taught the Astro 101 class and it's a more intense class than we had when I was a college student. And most of them are not science majors and they do really well in it. Um, there is a, there is a, a huge interest in this sort of thing. And I think it sparks the imagination, even for people who don't go into scientific fields. I think having that exposure to the wider universe, having the exposure, especially if you're emphasizing how science works and the process of science, and these aren't just edicts handed down by guys in white uh, uh, jackets, that these are things that we work on, things that we uh, is a process in my class and I know in other classes they'll emphasize ideas that we thought were right that were wrong and why we figured out they were wrong and how we replace them with better ideas so I think overall this is one of those things that I think is generally good obviously there's always work you can do to improve it and I think especially disadvantaged communities to extend the reach out there so that they have more exposure to this but uh, I think overall making the public even just a little bit more scientifically literate is going to is going to pay off ultimately. 
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel joining us. It's inter- You said something there that I don't want to just skip over because I think it's really important. When you teach that introductory class, Astronomy 101 or whatever it's called, those introductory classes, like you said, not everybody in that class is going to become an astronomer, but it'll peak an in interest. I know like when, when I took English 101 the first time, I didn't realize how good my high school English teacher had been until I took that class and I turned in my first essay and the guy's like, who was your English teacher? I'm like, Mrs. Nash. And she's, he's like, oh, you don't need to take this class. You've already had it. You know? <laughs> There's a realization when you take those entry level classes, this is more for your educator hat than your scientist hat. Those 101 classes, those introductory, you know, introductory English, introductory humanities, usually an introductory science, either in astronomy or a natural science or whatever, psychology 101. There's an inherent educational and scientific value to taking a general education course like that because it does open you up to other things. That, that plays into something, you know, I've told my own children, I tell people, I was like, nobody cares where you take English 101 at, go to community college, nobody cares, right? That's something that I think we don't tell people coming up out of high school enough is like, yes, take those courses because it may not be a career thing, but it'll definitely be a perception changing thing. And you've seen that firsthand because you teach that class. Yep. And I think that's one of the things where America is better than a lot of the rest of the world, because in many countries, they focus their undergraduate education much more narrowly on what their specialty is. You know, I have stu- I have people come to hear from other countries and they're like, why are your science students taking English classes and taking the anthropology classes and so forth? And then, oh, they write a lot better than students who haven't taken those classes. It, you know, it broadens the perspective. It teaches you skills that are applicable in many areas. You know, you're not, if you're taking an intro science class or an intro chemistry class and you're going to be a lawyer, you're not going to learn anything that you're going to use in a courtroom probably, but you are learning 
to broaden your perspective, to get a, a little bit of insight. And if you end up with you, where you have a scientific question in law, you have more of that feeling of how to go about asking the right questions, how to uh, filter the right answers and so forth. I'm a very big believer in a broad education and that people should do the humanities, they should do the social sciences, they should do science, because I think that these cross-pollinate into making you better at whatever you choose to do, having that education from other fields, I think broadens your mind, gives you that perspective, gives you those skills that can be applied. Yeah, Dr. Michael Siegel talking a little science. All right, time for a fun question here. Um, <laughs> I don't. I I almost am embarrassed to even ask you this, but I'm going to anyway because it's fun. Uh, I got to ask you about this. So this was online. I'm going to ask you about this. British. Now it's our British friends. We. I'm not going to make a British food joke here because I think British food is actually pretty good. And I will link to the picture. Plant-based mashed potatoes. Now, scientifically, when we're labeling things plant-based mashed potatoes, I feel like maybe we've crossed from science into marketing just a smidge <laughs> bit. But you, doctor, scientist, tell me what you think. That sounds like marketing to me, like someone saw plant-based meat and was uh, wanted to reassure people that potatoes are not meat or something like that. Um, I agree with you on British food, by the way. I Half of my mission is in the UK, so I've been there a few times. And if you, uh, I, and I could eat fish and chips all day and uh, there are wonderful curry shops. And if you go to like a small pub in the middle of nowhere in England, you're probably going to have a really good meal. I tell people all the time, I was like, it, it gets unfairly bashed because they're always comparing it to like French food and hot cuisine or whatever. That That's hot, not hot for those of you from <laughs> Logan. Um, if you think of it as comfort food going in, it, it hits much closer. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. it's I I've always, I've ate very very well when I've been in the UK. I have no complaints whatsoever. Uh, Michael Siegel, uh, who's married to an Aussie who likes Outback, but that's another story for another day. Uh, uh, Australia Day coming up, where we'll have to go there. We always go to Australia. Is that? I would think that would be an offensive thing, but you're actually just embracing it. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, my my wife just likes the food there. So uh, and. The, the sort of Aussie kitsch she kind of finds more amusing than offensive. Um, I've, I've had the reverse of that. I was in uh, Brisbane and I went to an American restaurant and it was like uh, the waitresses were all in cowboy hats and it was all steak and so forth. And I was like, oh, so this must be what it like, what's like when people come to America and go to our restaurants. But it was it was good is the food was good and it was a good place. So I didn't mind. Yeah, I, uh, I I will cop to going to TGI Fridays just off Trafalgar Square in London, but that's another story for another day. Uh, our good friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, he flies spaceships, he writes, he has a wonderful YouTube channel where he has all kinds of sci-fi science mashup explainers, including one that involved me, but that almost killed his ratings. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with you, and where they can find you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Uh, if you go to www.ordinary-times.com, that's where I I, I do uh, all, all my writing. I post my YouTube videos there. There'll be links to my Twitter and uh, uh, one-stop shopping. And if you even if you don't see me, you'll almost certainly see a really good writer there. Yeah, we're pretty proud of it. Dr. Michael Siegel, great knowledge, great insight. Always enjoy chatting with you and appreciate you bringing it down to the level where even I can understand it. Thank you, sir. It's always a pleasure to be on, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. 
Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is basically like Christmas for this guy. You've seen him frequently. He is our go-to for movie stuff. He is a double board certified critic. He's one of those real deals. He's not just one of those internet guys anymore. Uh, Luis Mendez of the Mendez Movie Report. And of course, we're going to talk about the Oscar nominations, which is Christmas Day for him. How are you, sir? Have you recovered yet? Uh, well, what I'll say about the nominations right off the bat is that they were everything, everywhere, all at once. Very good branding. Yeah, the the sweep almost of just about everything you can get. Everything. Look, let's just start right there. This has got to be the favorite for best picture in all the major awards right now, does it not? I mean, they, they've got an actor in every award. Uh, obviously, the technical way they made this film was pretty creative. This has got to be the favorite, yeah? Yeah, which uh, as someone who's rooting for the movie personally <laughs> makes me nervous because favorites do not have the best record uh, in the pre in the preferential ballot era that we've been in for the last decade. It's got the most nominations. I want to say 11 nominations. Uh, it got into some places I really didn't think it was going to get into. Uh, it got into, I want to say, I think costume design. Uh, it got into I mean, um, score. But the one that really surprised me was that it got into song. I did not think that that song was going to be in play. So I was very surprised to see it get in there. And then Stephanie Sue, who was on the margins because everybody thought that was going to be just about Jamie Lee Curtis, who, by the way, first time Oscar nominee, which is crazy to me that it's her first time ever. First time ever for Jamie Lee Curtis. And as good as her performances, I thought Stephanie Sue was a lot better. So I'm very happy to see, to see that she got in. And this movie has gone from being the underdog where people were laughing at people like me who were saying that it could get in back in the spring to now it's got a target on its back because it is the movie to beat. It has hit literally everything a would-be Best Picture winner needs to hit. It's got the most nominations. Um, it makes me a little nervous. Uh, for its chances because of that, but it is undoubtedly our front runner as we head into the actual ceremonies. Yeah, Luis Mendez, our movie guy. Um, let's start with Best Picture because that's always the top line item here, this and the actor stuff. We're going to get into some of the technical ones, though, because I think there's some really interesting things, especially screenplay kind of surprised me a little bit. But Best Pictures, that's that's the big number, right? <laughs> You got all these right on your predictions except for one, and I'm kind of upset that it's the one because it blew up my favorite trope when we talked to you about how Hollywood loves to have movies about Hollywood. The one you missed on, Babylon, was not included in here. Can't be a total shock. I wouldn't call it a snub. There was some dis, you know, discredited opinion about this film, but it did kill one of my favorite tropes every year for the Oscars that Hollywood likes movies about Hollywood. Yeah, well, to be fair, you could almost make an argument that Fablements kind of fits that bill since it is about sort of Steven Spielberg's personal uh, filmmaking journey. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it's not surprising to me. It was honestly kind of a swing for me to try to predict that it will get in because 
that movie was so divisive and it i mean i had it at number 10 for a reason because it, it really was on the bubble the movie that did get in women talking was also on the bubble but ultimately it was able to get in which I'm even though I personally like Babylon more than Women Talking, I'm very happy that Women Talking still got him because it was my number 11 of the year and it avoided what I think would have been an embarrassing stat for the Academy of no best picture uh nominees directed by women. Uh now they still ended up having no women director nominees, but they were still able to avoid that stat and I'm happy for that film. But Babylon was definitely a movie that was on the edge. It, it, I'm not surprised it didn't get in. Yeah, Luis Mendez joining us. I always try to pick out, you know, the Oscars always get this reputation of, well, they'll take a movie that nobody's actually seen. I don't think any of these are too out of the world, but there's a couple that folks probably aren't as familiar with. The surprise here is probably Triangle of Sadness. That's a movie that was very divisive amongst critics. And then Tar, which was getting a lot of talk for Best Actress. We'll talk about that in a minute. Folks are probably surprised that it got a Best Picture, though. And Elvis got a Best Picture. Now, of course, Austin Butler is, you know, in there for Best Actor. But that's another one because Baz can be really diverse on people either loving or hating him. Those are probably the three surprises on that list. Well, I got to tell you, I actually think two of those should not be considered surprises, uh, Elvis and Tar, because everything that I was seeing and hearing told me they were going to get in. Uh, the screenings for Elvis have been nuts, like sold out Academy screenings. People want to see this movie. I People love are, it. And I'm oh, not a Baz Luhrmann guy, but I thought it was it, it. you couldn't go in. We talked about it when we covered the movie. You couldn't go in thinking biopic. You go in thinking superhero musical, and that's what you yeah. get. I thought it was a great movie, though, and I'm not the biggest Baz fan, but I thought it was really good. I mean, it's kind of divisive among cinephiles, but it was in my top 25. I, I, I've seen the movie twice now. I think if you're going to do a biopic, the typical cradle to grave biopic, do something new with it, and Baz definitely did something new with it. Uh, Tar is sort of like the female version of there will be blood where you're not following a good person uh you're you're basically kind of it's kind of a character study um and kate blanchett delivers a performance that is arguably the female version of daniel day lewis doing their uh in there will be blood so that was a huge critical darling it's one of my favorite movies of the year i i got spoiled this year a lot of my favorites got recognition this year Whereas last year, uh, not so much. But um, and then Triangle Sadness is a surprise, even though it was constantly a bubble film. That was the Cannes Film Festival winner. I personally am kind. It, it's my least. It's my personal least favorite of the nominees. But that is a movie that was a big hit with a lot of people. It's 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 a it's a satire. It's got that sort of eat the rich stuff that some people eat up. Um, and I'm not surprised that it got in, uh, but I'm not, well, I should say I'm surprised it got in, but I'm not shocked because it was always a bubble film. It was always right there. Yeah. Luis Mendez joining us. Let's talk directing. Is Spielberg doing a movie about himself becoming a director going to help or hurt him here? Do you think? Well, on paper, he should be the favorite. The problem is that these two dudes who made uh, a movie that has become one of the biggest surprises of the year have come along in the Daniels, who, by the way, are only the third duo in history to get a Best Director nomination. They joined 
um, excuse me, the fourth duo. Uh, they joined the directors of the original West Side Story, uh, Warren Betty, and another director who, unfortunately, his name I can't remember for heaven, can't wait, and of course, the Coens. Um, they've kind of come along and ended up becoming the big critic favorite. They've won everywhere except the Golden Globes. Spielberg won at the Globes. The problem is the Golden Globes has a very big record of matching with the Oscars. And there is a possibility that DGA will tell us if Spielberg can't win at DGA, he I don't think he's winning director at the Oscars because DGA is the director's guild. And if they don't vote for Spielberg, I don't see him uh, winning at the Oscars. And he's already got a big hit that he didn't get a director nomination at BAFTA, which is a bad sign. Um, but uh, he is definitely the favorite. But in hindsight, we may look back and see that the Globes was just the Globes being the Globes and that it, this entire time it was the Daniels. After all, after all, they did direct the movie that has the most nominations. Yeah, let me tell you my pick for director and again i'm the i'm the philistine you're the cinephile here i've made no you know bones about my two favorite movies of this year it was top gun maverick and it was banshees i think martin mcdonough would be my director pick here now here's one of those insider things and you can explain it they've got four actors and actresses up for awards already it would really be something for something that's seen as an actor carried movie but i thought this movie and the directing of this movie the way the landscape is very much a character of this movie the the pub that's at the center of it they actually built it on location because they wanted the location first that was all built from scratch i think he's going to get penalized because there's such good acting in this movie but you don't get good acting without good directing i i think he really accomplished something with this film even if he doesn't win but that would be my pick well, he, he also uh, suffers from the infamous thing that the director's branch is very, uh, they're very hesitant to award people who are writers or actors turned directors. And Madonna did start out as a writer. Um, I don't think he's got a shot at director, but I do think he is definitely in play for screenplay. But again, like Spielberg, the problem Madonna faces is that these two dudes have come out of nowhere into Daniels and made a movie that is so original that it could just end up costing him. And and, and the thing is that if, if everything everywhere wants does not exist, Banshees is the critic pick. Banshees is the movie that's sweeping everything. And Banshees is right there in it. Now, I love Banshees myself, but I, the thing that is holding me back from believing it can win on a preferential ballot is that it's got audience scores that remind me of The Power of the Dog, where I don't feel this way, but there I know a lot of people out there who feel that the movie is depressing and that, and that they walk away from it kind of feeling down. Now, it's a dark comedy, um, I don't personally feel depressed by the movie, but you can't ignore that when you're thinking about what does well in a preferential ballot. So even though the movie is right there with everything everywhere, and, and if you look at all the stats of what do you want to hit if you want to win Best Picture, it really does seem to be everything everywhere versus Banshees. Everything everywhere has that crowd-pleasing uh, thing on its in its favor, but it might also be a little too weird for some of the older voters. But then you have Banshees, which maybe might be too depressing for some voters. So it's going to be interesting to see, which is why that sets up the potential for a dark horse that buses all the stats 
which could end up being Top Gun Maverick. And we'll, and we'll talk about screenplay because that was a big show for it there. But yeah, Madonna, Madonna, I, I love this directing as well, but he's 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 got a big climb. Yeah, I think the two Daniels get the best director here and maybe Spielberg on the sentimentality. We'll see how that one shakes out. Luis Mendez joining us. Okay, best actor. This is where the surprises start rolling in. Big day for Ireland here. I'd never heard of After Sun until this morning. I'm not even going to lie about it. I had to go Google this thing, and there it is. Paul Mescal. Who is this guy, and how did he get into Brendan Fraser's category here? Well, it's so After Sun is a small A24 movie. It's it's sort of this big darling among the super super niche cinephiles. Uh, a lot of people have been saying that it's their favorite movie of the year. Uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. Well, a lot of people in that niche group say it's their favorite movie of the year. Uh, personally, I actually uh, I like the movie, but I did not love it. I actually think it's arguably the most overrated film of the year, uh, which would get me torches in certain places if I said that out loud. Uh, but Paul Mescal is a young uh, up-and-comer. Uh, he's I, um Irish actor. Lots of praises for his performance in the movie, and it, this could end up being the breakout role for him where we start to see him show up in future uh, Oscars. But it is a very small movie. Don't feel bad about not hearing about it. I barely knew about it until the end of the year when they sent me a screener. Yeah, Lewis Mendes joining us. Uh, the, the real story in this category, though, is is Brendan Fraser going wire to wire with this? I'm starting to have doubts because this movie didn't get into picture, and that is a big red flag because traditionally actor tends to match with uh, best picture nominee. He's he's in it though. He's in it, but he's going up against Colin Farrell, who is the lead actor in a movie that is currently a top two contender to win best picture. And then there's a young guy by the name of Austin Butler that has had arguably the breakout role of the year playing Elvis and they love 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 people playing peep uh peep uh, you know historical figures and he has an incredible performance that reminds me a lot of sort of Rami Malek in Bohemian Rhapsody and if this movie as this movie showed up elsewhere uh big time uh, I think that it could end up being Austin Butler but if, if Brendan Fraser is going to pull this off and become the first, I think it will be the first time since 2010 that it would be a non-Best Picture nominee winning Best Actor. He's really going to have to show up and get a big win at SAG. What helps Fraser at the moment, and it feels like he's kind of climbing, is that he gave this incredible speech at the Critics' Choice Awards. And that could, speeches matter because it, it gets those narratives going and voters start getting behind you. So that helps him that he's got an incredible narrative. Uh, but it's going to be tough for him because there are two contenders right there with him who have Best Picture nominees. Uh, Luis Mendez joining us. Um, here we go again for Best Actor Supporting Row. Banshees gets two in there, which was surprising. 
And then um, the other one, here's another surprise. One of the few misses you had on yours. We're going to link to your ordinary times. So everybody can see how you did. You really did well here, by the way, my friend. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry in Causeway. Here you go again. I had to go Google it. I'd never even heard of this picture. And here he is in a supporting role, best actor nomination nod. Yeah, one of my favorite, you know, usually I, I don't mind getting stuff wrong, but if I'm going to get stuff wrong, I'm, I want it to be something I'm happy for. And I am so happy for Brian Tyree Henry because he was in my personal five for the critics groups that I voted in. He's a part of Cosplay where he delivers a really great uh, performance. As a, as, as, it's a very muted one, which is why it's interesting that he got in because usually they like showy performances. Cosway is available on Apple TV+. Plus. It came out sort of towards the end of the season. I think it's one of the more underrated films of the year. It ended up coming pretty close to making my top 25. Um, it's an interesting character drama about a, a veteran uh, dealing with PTSD and having to overcome that. And uh, Brian Tyree Henry does one of the best performances of the year, if you ask me. So I'm very happy for him to get in. Uh, he again he was in my personal five i'm not i'm surprised but not shocked he got in because i did have him as a bubble guy right there um but yeah he's definitely a big surprise because a lot of people thought it was going to be eddie redmayne for the good nurse but it looks like he ended up just coming up short um but for when it comes to supporting actor the big story is kihi kwan from everything everywhere who literally has broken the record for critic sweeps of victories of any category ever this dude cannot lose he is winning supporting actor at some of the most snobbiest highbrow critics organizations that you will know this dude is just dominating and i'm so happy for him because this guy is basically told that he can't be involved in acting anymore because he's asian so he ends up just doing a lot of behind the scenes stuff. 30 plus years later, decides to get back into acting after he saw Michelle Yeoh in Crazy Rich Asians. Comes back and the first movie that he does with Michelle Yeoh there is, is gonna probably lead to him actually winning a freaking Oscar. This is, it's, it's one of the most insane stories of the season. So, I mean, he is easily probably the biggest lock out of all the acting uh, contenders. There's a great video online. I'll try to find it and link to it in the show notes. But uh, Brendan Fraser and him sitting at one of these roundtable pre-Oscar things. And they cracked the joke. It's like, well, we should have been nominated together for Encino Man all those years ago. Of course, quite, he's short round from Indiana Jones for people my age. That's what he was known. And then he just disappeared. He got kind of labeled that child actor thing and the Asian thing and didn't act. It's such a cool story. I'm kind of hoping he wins. Uh, let's move on to the ladies. Uh, Luis Mendez joining us. We're talking Oscar nominations. Best Actress. Here's you another one. You keep talking about this over and over again. You say it's a toss-up between the top two, Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yao. Usually when it's a toss-up between the top two, there's that potential for somebody else to sneak in and snag one. Is one of the favorites going to do it, or is that going to happen here? I think it's going to be one of the favorites because the issue is that, first of all, statistically, the biggest upset that we got uh, to this morning is Andrew Riceboro getting in for to Leslie, who literally last second had a grassroots campaign. This woman has not shown up anywhere. A lot of people forgot this movie even existed. I had to she, Google it. 
There's and, another one. <laughs> and she literally got in last second through a word of mouth campaign. As I, I guarantee she was probably the fifth person who barely snuck in there. Now, there is going to be some controversy as to why two incredible black actress performances from Viola Davis and Daniel Deadwilder didn't get in. And meanwhile, actress kind of pushed this white actress in a movie nobody saw in. I think there's going to be a little bit of backlash to that, which is probably going to help Angela Bassett over in supporting actress. But when you look at the who's going up against Kate and um, and Michelle, it's it seems like with all due respect, sort of also rants where the nomination is the win. I don't see a situation like the the infamous thing that happened in 1951 when it was uh, Betty Davis versus um, uh, oh shoot, I forgot the the woman who played uh, Norma Desmond, um, and and it, they ended up splitting the vote. And they ended up leading to a big upsetting actress. I think this really does come down to Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh. I think it's Kate Blanchett to lose at the moment, but Michelle Yeoh is right there nipping at her heels. And if everything everywhere ends up having a big night, I can see her coming along for the ride. Now let me see you go off like a ball. joining us you just mentioned it let's just go ahead and talk about it best supporting actress i got it the popular people's vote here is going to be angela bassett for a lot of reasons one is she's just awesome and everybody loves her and she's been criminally underusing her career in my opinion although some of that's her picking her spots it's been a long time since she's been up at the podium she's wonderful you know, there's all the stuff with Black Panther, Wakandia Forever. There's all that emotion behind it. That's all going to get channeled towards Angela Bassett in addition to her performance. Is it going to be enough, though? Because you've got two from everything, everywhere, all at once in the same category. You got um, the whales back in there and Carrie Condon, who was awesome in Ban Banshees doesn't work without her. She's the pivot that makes that whole male-driven angst fun ride of dark comedy work. And again, I love that movie. Is Angela Bassett the favorite? Is she going to win it? She is the favorite. The problem that Angela Bassett is going to have to deal with, though, is that she doesn't have a Best Picture-nominated film. And the question is, can she win at BAFTA? Because BAFTA, BAFTA makes the Academy look like the People's Choice Awards. They, you, there's a reason Top Gun, Maverick, and Black Panther, Wakanda Forever didn't show up as much at BAFTA. But the fact that she still showed up at BAFTA could end up being a good sign. Also, she's got the narrative. This woman, this is only her second Oscar nomination, and the last was like 30, almost 30 years ago or something like that for um, the uh, the Tina Turner film. And um, I, I just, I, I think that what's in her favor is the narrative and the fact that now we've saw two major contending black actresses missing lead actress, I think just you can see this imperative of we got to award Angela Bassett so we can get a woman of color an Oscar. And she, by the way, is the first ever MCU acting nominee ever. And it would be very interesting to see if the MCU, at a time that the 
industry doesn't have the greatest relationship with it still manages to pull off a supporting actress oscar with but because i do think she's favored at sag and then if she wins at bafta i, I don't see anybody beating her but if anyone's going to beat her i think it's carrie condon because she is in a top tier best picture contender she's probably the favorite at bafta given the you know the bias of uh, bafta being british and that everything everywhere ladies are going to split the vote so um i, I it, it does look like it, she's the favorite but i wouldn't call her a lock like kihi kwan looks like it would be funny if carrie gets the one oscar for banshee out of the bunch when you kind of look at how this all shakes out in a male-driven movie, that would be really funny, but it's you can kind of see a path for that happening here. And, and, and it would actually match with recent trends where the supporting actress winner is that movie's lone win. Like if Banshee just ends up not getting anything else but she wins, that actually matches with recent trends for supporting actress. Yeah, and again, I love that movie. That movie don't work without her performance. That's that's the fulcrum of that whole thing. She she's the touchstone that keeps it from going off kilter. So it's not that it's not deserved. It's just going to be low and unexpected. Let's talk. Um, Luis Mendez joining us. Mendez movie report talking the Oscars. Let's talk technical stuff. This is I rarely get upset by these nominations. I rarely pay attention to them. I'd rather just let you tell me and I repeat what you say and then I look smart, right? Apparently, I don't understand what the term cinematography means because. If Top Gun Maverick does not get forget a nomination, that's the most cinematography film I've seen in my lifetime, probably. Like, do I not understand what? And I know they got a visual effects, whatever, whatever. What? Wait, didn't even get a nomination for it? Like, do I not understand what that word means? This, this is outrageous to me. This, and I know it's the Oscars and it's silly, and they got their technical stuff, but I think cinematography. I mean, that's like top, top cinematography I've seen in my entire life. How did that not get a nomination? Yeah, actually, statistically, next to Andrew Riceboro sneaking into actress, this is the biggest shock of the morning because Top Gun Maverick cinematography has been sweeping the critics' organization. Both critics groups that I voted for, we both, both of them voted. Well, no, well, one, I want to say one of them voted for Top Gun Maverick for cinematography. The other, it was the runner up to the Batman, which also was snubbed for cinematography, which is crazy to me as well. Top Gun Maverick, it's interesting because it, it doesn't feel like a lot of, it's a lot of critics personal number one in cinematography, but it's the one that as a consensus, they definitely agreed on as among the best. And that's why I think you saw it sweeping across the board. This was supposed to be the favorite to get the Oscar for cinematography, and it didn't even get in. Now, that makes me think that Old Quiet on the Western Front is going to sneak in and get the cinematography award instead. But considering that Top Gun is the favorite in sound, I believe that it's now the favorite in editing, even over everything everywhere. It's ridiculous to me that it didn't get into cinematography. It is next. If it wasn't for Andrew Riceboro, this would be the biggest surprise of the morning that a lot of us who try to predict this thing. So I'm not off base and being like, what in the world? Yep. Here's the other thing is, and I've, I've seen a couple of people already write about this. The Academy is a little self-aware and they are still snobby. Is this the payback for giving them the best picture nomination? I don't think so, because again, this is this is cinematography that was showing up everywhere, including the guilds. What I think is a possibility that happened is that because cinematography was a really stacked race this year, but... I think what may have happened is that everybody, it's, it's this thing that you got to be careful for these favorites. 
everybody assumes it's gonna get in so they try to vote in other things they're passionate about and that's how you end up with surprises like this uh lewis mendez our critic okay i'm gonna be a philistine again some of this is going to be unfair criticism i'll admit it because i'm not the insider that you are so you explain it to me though we have things like we just went through cinematography okay cinematography is kind of a wide burst because we you know there's digital now there's a lot i, I understand that's got a spectrum to it. visual effects that's an even wider spectrum that's got a lot of give to it right here's Which, my by question. the way visual effects is an absolute lock everybody already knows avatar is gonna win that and i'm okay with that as visual effects i wouldn't give this is me philistine you're the expert you explain i wouldn't give avatar a cinematography nod because it's not cinematography it's more like animation and i know we're going to keep animation to it so animation's its own debate at the academy right now and i understand that like the we'll talk about pinocchio in a minute they spent like three years doing stop motion for that thing is that really still animation at that point you can debate these things avatar as brilliant visually as it is that's not cinematography to me. That's more animation and computer than making a movie. And I know this gets into niche stuff and what you just call it and things like that. But that's why I get a little under the collar with the Top Gun thing. I was like, they went out and shot that thing live with very little CGI. Avatars all CGI. Do the categories accurately express what we're doing in movie making right now? Because it kind of feels like, look, visual effects, absolutely Avatar wins. It's a visual effect. Do we need to kind of maybe modify some of these? Because it doesn't seem like they're keeping up with the kind of movies we're actually making now. Well, well, you put me in an uncomfortable position because uh, Avatar actually had my favorite cinematography of the year, uh, even though I did have Top Gunning my ballot. Granted, but you understand my point. They're not pulling, They're not pointing a camera at a landscape and lining up the light, which is what kind of traditionally cinematography is. They're they're doing, and I and I understand the technology, I and I, I marvel at it. But you see where I'm coming from with it. And maybe I'm just a knuckle-dragging Philistine here. But it, that's a whole different discipline than the movie making we've seen for the last hundred years. Well, I, th I think what you're saying, it, it, which I think is a valid argument to make regarding the fact that it's all basically digital and, and, and well, well, not necessarily all digital, but in terms of like, you know, it's motion capture and stuff like that. But they, I think what helps Avatar is that they literally did go down in the water and film stuff underwater with the motion capture stuff which is with some new technology i think the narrative behind that helps that movie a lot uh which i would expect from james cameron because james cameron is you know a, I, I believe he actually is a full-blown like marine biologist or something like that um so i think that's what helps it in the same way that having the uh the cameras on the plane helped Top Gun Maverick. Um, but I, I, again, look, I, I, I do think Avatar deserves a spot in cinematography, but this, this snub of Top Gun Maverick does upset me as well because I do think it was one of the best cinematography of the year. And by the way, the Batman isn't in here either, which I also thought has some of the best cinematography of the year. Uh, so it's a bit frustrating. But I think now it's going to be another military movie's. Uh, award to lose. I think All Quiet on the Western Front has now interest the favorite in cinematography. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. 
At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Yeah, Luis Mendez. All right, let's put a bow on this. The Oscars are coming. Uh, of course, everything, everywhere, all at once is now the favorite. They've got 11 nods, so they're probably not going to get into the double-digit, you know, clean sweep category of the Oscars. Let's put the over-under. Let's call it eight. Eight wins over-under. Under. Because okay. even even movies that have a lot of good, a lot of nominations and still go on to win picture and everything – even they in this era get like four or less wins because it, we are in an era where you're seeing voters spread the love more than they did in the old days where whatever had the most nominations was probably going to sweep a lot of awards. All right, let's just run through the list real quick here. All Quiet on the Western Front and Banshees both had nine nominations each. How many? And Banshees, half of those are for acting, which is really remarkable. Tells you what quality this film was. Uh, how many nods do you think both of those get with nine nominations each? Definitely under. Uh, I think All Quiet is going to have a shot to split text with Top Gun and Avatar. Uh, Banshees, Banshees is the problem that it keeps being the number two at the moment to a lot of things. So I would say that unless Banshee suddenly becomes the front runner for picture, it maybe only escapes with one or two wins. Uh, Elvis has eight nominations. Obviously, Austin Butler is the one everybody's going to really be paying attention to. It's also up for a lot of design type of technical awards. How many do you think? And does Butler sneak in with a best actor? 
It's all about Butler. He is the that film's biggest chance at Oscars. And if he wins, I guarantee you makeup's going to come along with him. All right. Good point. Uh, Fablemans, of course, this is Steven Spielberg being Steven Spielberg to a certain extent. They're up with seven. Yeah, this all hinges on best best director, right? If you yeah, win best director, they'll get a couple more somewhere in there. It Favelmans is all hinges on Spielberg, and if he's enough, because that movie has been fading of late, and there's been stories that Academy voters don't like it as much as we thought they would. Uh, but it that Spielberg is that movie's best shot. If you start to see that Spielberg can't even win at DGA, there is a possibility Favelmans gets nothing. Wow, really? Okay, Tar and Top Gun Maverick both got six. Tar's kind of that same situation as go Kate Blanche is probably how the movie goes. Yes, it's all about Kate. It's also a dark horse for director, I should say, since we brought that up. Well, yeah, but I mean, uh, uh, he's not going to win director as much as I like Todd Fields directing in that movie. But uh, Kate is basically Daniel Day losing There Will Be Blood. It's basically all about her and if she can win. Um, in terms of Top Gun, for Top Gun, it's all about how many texts can it win? And does it have an outside shot at winning that adaptive screenplay? Because adaptive screenplay tends to go to a Best Picture nominee. Yeah, and those that's probably why those got coupled together. Black Panther, here we go again. Angela Bassett. Look, I love Angela Bassett. She's been a favorite for years and years and years. I'm great if she gets another Oscar. I would love to see it. If that happens, they'll probably pick up some more, yeah. It's all about Angela Bassett. Um, the movie does have chance at a couple of texts, particularly costume design, but it is all about Angela Bassett, and she is that movie's chances. All right, finally, Luis Mendez, Mendez Movie Report, our expert, your favorite Oscar category. Who's winning best song? <laughs> uh, I really hope it's not too not too from RRR that where it finally showed up somewhere, and that performance at the Oscars is going to be so much fun to see. I'm going to go with not to not to, but keep an eye on hold. Uh, what's it called? Hold my hand from uh, uh, Lady Gaga from Top Gun Maverick. That is a that is the song that has been right there with it. I got a I got a bad feeling about the song category. I'm getting Phil Collins kind of vibes about sneaking in with a with a very generic. I'm getting a bad feeling about best song category, buddy. I'm just telling you, I'm good with both of those. I think those are both winners. Look, my family's got to hold my hand on repeat right now because we all love Top Gun and my kids all love Lady Gaga. I got a sneaking suspicion though, man. I'm just a little worried about how that nomination shook out. Well, so what you so which is the one that you're scared of? Uh, the Black Panther song. I'm a little worried about the back lift me up sneaking in there. Not that it's not a great, great song. It's, it's a good song. Yeah. It, man, it, it feels like that Phil Collins Oscar. It's just going to, it's that catchy pop song is going to sneak in there and everybody's going to be like, wait, wait, how'd that win? Well, if, if anybody's watching the ceremony, if everything everywhere actually pulls off that song, it's going to win picture, but because there's no way it should be winning that song. This it's literally snuck in there. So I, at the very least, we'll know that if it wins best song. I love me some Rihanna, but like she can't have the Super Bowl and an Oscar within a month of two, three weeks each other. That's not fair. Can't do that. And, and, and I got to tell you, that's some good campaigning right there for her, too. She's going to be at the Super Bowl before they start voting. You want to talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. It might be her this year. Luis Mendez, let folks know where they can follow you. The Substack's great. He writes at Ordinary Times. We're going to be doing this again when it comes Oscar time. We'll see how we'll do. Buddy, let folks know how they can follow you and keep up with you until we see you again, my friend. Uh, MentisMovieReport.substack.com. Get all my thoughts and Oscar predictions there as well. Um, uh, Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter, uh, if you got Letterbox, if you, anyone's on Hive Social, Mendes Movie RPT. I'm all, everywhere there. And the YouTube is coming. I've already, I know I've been saying for months it's coming, but it is coming. And it's, I've got a plan to do a best picture series looking at all the best picture races going all the way back to the very first Oscars when it was Wings versus Seventh Heaven. We need to do an episode on your early work too, because I'm going to talk Metropolis some with you and some of those early works, folks, because a lot of those are public domain now. They've started to where you can actually just watch them on YouTube. We need to do a whole episode on that. Some first, history first, of cinema. First ever Best Picture winner is now officially public domain. Isn't that amazing? It's good stuff. We'll do a whole episode on that, man. Remind me. Luis Mendez, appreciate the time, buddy. Try to recover from your busy morning of enjoying yourself. Hey, thanks for having me. I love being here every time I get the chance. Anytime, sir. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Hertel. Okay, let's go back overseas, talk a little bit of some really interesting stuff going on in the UK that, yes, it's a little different, but there's some universal principles to apply there. We've got Jack Rowlett back with us, Young Voices contributor. He's a writer and commentator coming to us from Nottingham, England, of Robin Hood fame. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. It's good to be here. Looking so forward to discussing Britain. Yeah, I am too. So we, we you got to mess with the NHS National Health System going over there right now. Everything from ambulance response times, you got nurses strikes, now you've got a doctor shortage. This looks like a real big hot mess on the outside, but the real problem with this is the more you look at it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of solutions coming anytime soon on some of these issues. Yeah, I mean, it's it's top of the political agenda here at the moment. And something, something that's interesting is in this country, we sort of look down our noses at America and you guys is having you don't have universal health care and you know your health care outcomes are determined often by whether you've got a job how much money you have and we sort of get this we have this real sense of superiority in britain that we have this free at the point of use health care and everybody has access to it but actually now increasingly because of the state of the healthcare system i don't think we can really claim to be a country with universal health care anymore you know i've, I've been in um, accident and emergency in nottingham recently and you've got people on beds in corridors you've got people sleeping on the floors you've got you know wait times of days now in some cases for accident and emergency care uh, and we've got you know we've got uh, i think it's about 500 people a week currently dying purely because of the extended wait times for accessing care and it, in terms of the solutions i think we've we've got there are a couple of problems here one of which is that it sort of has to get worse before it gets better and so i think that's the that's the dynamic of us feeling like it we can't really make it better like there's no solutions to the problem because actually there's nothing that's going to make it better tomorrow but there are a number of things that we can do reasonably quickly so one thing that's being talked about a lot over here is that two that we could um allow pharmacies to prescribe medication because they're not allowed to do that so for kind of less serious illnesses you would be able to go to your pharmacy rather than your doctor and get a prescription for some medication from them and that's sort of we've got a big problem with um wait times for doctor's appointments as well so that would help out with that as well um and then other solutions like the fact that the, the nhs model really focuses on acute care 
and it doesn't focus enough on making sure people are fit and healthy in general and so preventative care and so there's a, a lot of talk about how we need to we really need to transition to focusing on that sort of care as well um, because then you avoid this sort of crisis happening in the first place if you have a fitter healthier population yeah jack rowlett joining us let's let's have the grown folk talk about this though is because too much when you're talking policy wise like when we're talking on a show like this or we're writing a piece some of our friends use universal health care or government health care or single payer whatever terminology you want to use almost like it's a magic word like oh we'll just have universal health care and it fixes everything whatever system you're advocating for if it's not well administered it really doesn't matter because you're still going to have problems with it and that's where we this thing kind of falls apart is like Look, it's it's not a magical incantation. If you're going to have universal health care, there are trade-offs to it. You're going to pay much higher taxes. You're going to have limited options on your health care. You're going to have those trade-offs, but it is free and everybody gets it. We just don't want to have those full discussions past the buzzword sometimes. Like you just said, you've said it for so long. Well, we have universal health care. You don't. This is the risk of it in inertia. If you don't administer it, it really doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, I mean, if it's free but terrible then there's not much point in having it at all. Um, and, and ultimately, somebody does have to pay. And that's uh, that's the sort of difference is, is ultimately care in America is rationed just as it is here. It's just here it's being rationed at random in a healthcare system that's sort of crumbling all around us, whereas in America it's more rationed on the base of your income or your job, right? Um, and and here there is a real we call, we often say in the UK that the NHS is the closest thing we have to a national religion like that's the sort of cult like status it has in the national psyche and for a long time any talk of reforming it at all immediately leads to suggestions that you want to replace it with an American style system and that you want to privatize it and you're going to sell off the NHS to private American pharmaceutical and, and medical companies. And so there are all these roadblocks to reform. And and it's a lot of it is driven by the politicians, because as soon as you have one party say, OK, well, the NHS is a mess. We need to reform it. Let's do A, B and C. The other parties come along and say, ah, no, you want to privatize the NHS. They're going to destroy it. That if you want to save the NHS, you've got to vote for us at the next election. And so nothing ever changes. But I think right now, the scale of it is is just unimaginable. I don't think people really imagine that we'd reach a point in this country where you are ringing 999 for an ambulance and potentially it just doesn't come and you, you end up dying in your home or your loved one ends up dying. And so I think now there is there is something of a changing attitude and people are acknowledging that maybe we do need a change to our healthcare system and that maybe even I, I think uh, our attachment to universal healthcare is resolute but that maybe this model of universal healthcare just doesn't work with the aging population we have jack rowlett joining us see this is the problem in healthcare in america is the older you get the more expensive you get we're talking about the business side of it now the older you get the more expensive you get and we have an insurance heavy model for good bad or indifferent so you know the young people have to pay into it although they're not using as many services broadly speaking to take care of the older people that's the problem you already mentioned it for folks that aren't familiar with the national health system it was built it's a post-world war ii thing heavily that's kind of the model it was designed for that britain because that was the britain that existed then the uk more broadly that's not the uk that exists now there is the talk that it didn't keep up to the times as it was supposed to that focused on acute care, not focused on things like preventative care or long-term care or even palliative care for the elderly. That's where you start getting into the nuts and bolts medical policy problems here. And that's where a lot of the debate is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's been flawed since the start. 
because yeah you mentioned it's a, it's a post-war model of healthcare. it's absolutely right it was started in the late 1940s but actually the expectation of the government that brought it in was you would cut healthcare spending in the medium and long run as a result of bringing in universal health care because you'd treat people and so their conditions wouldn't get worse but actually what happened was the sheer scale of demand meant that actually healthcare spending has just risen inexorably since then and we've reached a tipping point now because of those sort of demographic issues we've got so many people sort of over the age of 60 that are not enough young people paying taxes in and we and we've also you know we're rolling up the drawbridge and not letting as many immigrants into britain anymore so that tax base is shrinking and so demand on the nhs is just increasing inexorably as that tax base shrinks and no one has thus far been willing to reckon with the with this with this difficult problem and actually explain to the public well okay you've got the options of either we carry out a massive reform either we everyone just goes private and poor people no longer have access to healthcare or people pay a lot more in taxation. And these these um, reforms and ideas aren't always popular here because it's really hard to reform the NHS because of its place in the national psyche. Um, but actually it's it's so urgent now, it's so urgent. You've got you know toddlers sleeping on floors in accident and emergency departments. You've got pensioners waiting four days, pensioners with suspected heart attacks, you know, waiting days for healthcare, dying on trolleys, you know, people in car parks here receiving care in car parks because there's no capacity inside the actual hospitals themselves. We just need to do something about it and, and reckon with the difficult truth. joining us on herd tell I, when we have these conversations I always I always put my hands up and i was like okay i'll have the universal health care versus whatever debate with anybody you want to i want to tell everybody two things about me though i lived overseas i lived in germany i've been a german patient in the hospital i've had a german ambulance pick me up i know how that the that kind of model the european model works intimately i've been there i'm also a va health patient veterans affair patient which is the government-run health care system in america so i know the good bad and difference of all of this if you live in Germany, you get excellent health care. But what we would call the middle class in America, you're also paying in the 40 percentile of taxes plus a 19 percent VAC tax to pay for all that. If you pitched America on 60 percent taxes, they would tar and feather you and run you out of town. You just mentioned it with the UK. There's no model of reform for the NHS that isn't involving raising taxes, but you've got a population problem at the same time. That's a math problem that has got to be solved if you're going to actually fix the NHS, right? And that brings in immigration. It brings in politics. It brings in the culture war stuff. That's an ugly ball to try to unwind. But the result of that is, is an NHS where it's really hurting people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one, one thing people don't um, seem to often grasp about Britain is actually our healthcare system. It, it's not a straight European model. It's it is it's free at the point of use and it's it's uh, it's universal. So. I think in America, you often associate that with 
with Europe, but actually it's quite different to how the rest of Europe works. We have we don't have any real insurance model at all whereas countries like germany and the netherlands for example they do it's a much more heavily regulated insurance model than you have in america but there is a sort of social insurance system there and so we in a sense we have the worst of all worlds with our healthcare system because it's massive and bureaucratic and run by the state and you have all the problems that go along with that but also the quality of care and provision of care is really bad as well so it's 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 a massive problem and the dem the demographics that you've you've just mentioned i mean that is the biggest thing now and and actually it does it does go broader than the nhs you mentioned immigration and the cultural stuff and everything there there is a real there is a real generational divide here in the uk now and actually part of improving public services so the nhs education all those things part of that is making tough choices about um you know letting more immigrants in and encouraging people to have more children um, and making policy more pro-family because that's how you improve increase the size of the tax base in the short and medium term and that's how you fund good public services and what's most interesting is that the, the very people who rely most on the national health service the sort of over 60s over 65s those people are the most unwilling to confront those difficult choices and make britain a more pro-family country and make britain a more pro-immigrant country and it's it's a cycle of despair yeah, Jack Rowlett, we have the same problem here with what we call the boomer generation, They, but we'll get into that some other time. Let's talk about that right there, though, because this is where this starts to cross streams into some other areas of policy. That young cohort, let's just say 18 to 25, post-school, post-university, you know, that group, we're seeing some very troubling data post-COVID coming out of the UK. They're having trouble getting jobs and they're tr getting having trouble getting housing. You talked about the immigration problem. Look, it's an either or formula. You either have a high birth rate or you got to have immigrants if you're going to have an economy. You got to have one or the other. The people you do have can't get work and can't get housing to start their own lives and start their own. You know, housing is equity. Housing is wealth. These these are building blocks to your economy that we don't talk about as much as we do, like the unemployment rate. This is really troubling stuff for the UK, though, because the building blocks of the future economy for the next generation don't look real good right now. No, they they look terrible. And it, and if I look at people my age who are looking to get on in life, you know, smart people my age, all of them are looking at leaving Britain because they don't think that there are opportunities here and they don't think the country is serious about improving things. Housing is a real barrier. Housing, the state of housing in the UK right now is a disaster on so many levels. You have the level that it's really hard to buy for first time buyers, the cost of housing relative to average wages is it's it's about nine and a half times higher the average house price compared to the average annual wage and in london it's something like 20 times higher it's it's ridiculous there and it, if you go back to the 1970s it was about three times the average annual wage so objectively in real terms the cost of housing has gotten so much more expensive over the past half century or so and then also that's now spilling over into the rental sector so for, for a long time, you've had a situation where younger people, you know, people in their 20s and 30s have struggled to afford housing, but there was plenty of rented accommodation that they could find and stay in. And that's not it's not desirable for people to be relying on that forever. But actually, at least you had somewhere you could go. Now we're in a situation where there's such a dire shortage of rented accommodation in lots of our cities particularly university cities we have students coming into cities and there's you know waiting lists for accommodation there's queues all the way around the block 
to look around apartments. You have situations where landlords are, are actually renting apartments to the highest bidder, as in the person who can pay the most rent per month rather than having a predetermined set amount. And when you actually get into this accommodation, a lot of it is really run down. It's really bad. It's damp. It's moldy. It's cold. And so the, the, the quality of housing is really low. And because there's such a shortage, it means although we have laws around kind of minimum provisions that you have to have for accommodation in the UK, actually your power as a renter is minimal because you can go to your landlord and complain about something and the landlord's response will often be, well, OK, move out then. But you know you can't go anywhere else because there's nowhere else in your price range. You see your friends who are having to move back in with their parents because they can't even rent somewhere. Not that they can't even buy somewhere. They can't even rent somewhere. That's how bad it's gotten. And then that spills over into this intergenerational problem in that you have boomers here who own all the property, essentially, and they block new property from being built, particularly in the places we most need it. And so, again, that cycle of despair, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. That leads to less children being born. It leads to lower productivity. It leads to uh, lower tax take. And that makes public services worse and it makes Britain a less dynamic and versatile economy. Jack Rowland joining us. The reason I bring that up is because you said Britain is under a generational change. Generational change comes whether you want it to or not, right? There's no stopping it. It's the, that's the tide of time when it comes to people. Generational change can be good or it can be bad. We're looking at these economic problems. We're looking at the NHS problems. We're looking at the political upheaval in parliament right now in the UK. It doesn't look like this is going to be good generational change if you don't solve some of these problems. You have an or, a urban and rural problem. You know, the highest unemployment for the youth in, is in the West Midlands, the Birmingham, you know, the old industrial mm -hmm. sectors. It seems like there needs to be some pretty bold action here to cut off this whole generation going in a bad generational change instead of good generational change. But is there any movement to try to actually do anything about it? There's lots of grassroots campaigns, but at the top of politics nothing is changing. I mean, our government has just made it harder, in effect, to build housing by abolishing housing targets um, that were placed on local authorities here, which means there's even less incentive for local councils here to build housing than there was before. And we already weren't building enough. Um, taxes here have been risen to the, uh, the highest, they're now at the highest level they've been since the Second World War. And if you look at where the tax burden falls, it's on working people and working young people and not on older people. And so money is increasingly being given out to older people in the form of benefits from the state. Um, and it's money from younger people that's funding that, except that um, the kind of the usual dynamics of history have been reversed. If you go back sort of 40 years, older people were tended to be in poverty at a much higher rate than the working age population. Now it's reversed. We have more than a third of pensioners here are millionaires. And the percentage of pensioners, retirees in poverty is considerably lower than the working age population now. And so things are being constantly rigged in their favor. We have 
um, here, uh, what we're dubbing the cost of living crisis now because the cost of energy is so high. And one of the things that the government's doing to help out with that is they're giving out payments direct to households, um, like a sort of amount taken off the bill of your energy. And yet more money just goes to pensioners for that handout than anyone else. And it's not means tested at all, whether you're a rich pensioner or a poor pensioner. If you're old, you get a big handout from the state to help you with your energy. If you're a young person on a zero hours contract with a load of college debt who's struggling to pay their soaring rent, you get a lot less. And so the gov and this, the problem for the government is their voter base is almost entirely the over 65s now. So there's no political impetus for them to make things better for younger working age people. Yeah, Jack Rollett, th that's a universal problem. Every country has that problem. The older people are going to have more political power because they got more money, more assets, whatever. That's not new. However, you do have one advantage in England where you have a parliamentary system with outside some very specific judicial review. What parliament says goes, you know, you don't have a written constitution. So whatever parliament does, that goes. You could have some pretty sweeping change here if there was a political appetite for it. How much has the chaos of the last year or so really crippled people's belief in Parliament? And I'm not just talking Labour versus the Tories and that sort of stuff. Just the chaos in general. That's where it really starts kind of hurting is because where you would look to Parliament's like, OK, it's time to do some sweeping change here. And you're changing prime ministers every five minutes and you're just kind of sitting around waiting for the Labour to get their turn. And you're probably not real super hyped that the Labour's going to do a whole lot. That's a big problem of faith in government you've got when you really, really need them to be able to steady the ship, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the system's totally breaking down now. And if you look historically, when one party gets tired, there's tended to be a politician from the other party who is a kind of radical, dynamic leader who people can get excited about and get behind. And actually, if you talk to people in the UK now, no one feels excited about about any of them. You know, that they're, they're all terrible they're all or not or not terrible necessarily but there's there's just a kind of apathy right you either hate politics or you just feel apathetic towards it here began and people look towards parliament and they look at we've had scandals um involving expenses we've had scandals involving drugs recently we've had scandals involving sexual harassment in westminster and people just look at them as sort of reflecting the worst of britain rather than the best of britain and so yeah i think people's faith in our politicians to actually get us out of this rut uh is very low right now yeah i had a labor friend uh quip to me like if all due respect to Keir Starmer, he said, you know, if we had a labor leader worth anything, he'd be king instead of Charles after three, you know, conservative prime ministers having to resign in disgrace. Just, you know, it's mm -hmm. stuff like that. Like nobody seems to be able to even capitalize on the other side, not being able to do anything. That's kind of I'm an outside observer. You tell me you're there. But when you can't take advantage of your political opponents, absolutely shooting themselves in the foot. I don't inspire a whole lot of confidence to me. I'm not picking a side. I'm just saying it looks bad. It looks chaotic. And it looks like even when this, you know, whenever you do have a general election this year, this fall, whenever that eventually happens, if Labor takes over, I don't really see anything really changing. Yeah, I mean, it, it should be stated that Labor are well ahead in the polls here at the moment. And Keir Starmer, for an opposition leader, is pretty popular. But there's that lack of enthusiasm. People are just kind of trundling along saying, oh, well, it's time for a change now. Conservatives have been really bad. Labour can't be any worse. There's there's no enthusiasm whatsoever. Um, but I think I think one interesting dynamic as well is that actually the last time Labour came into power, they did so on the back of a really strong economy. And so when they came in, there was lots of money to throw around on public services. There was lots of money to sort of improve things for 
um, lower earners, lots of money spent on tax credits, child benefit, all these sorts of things. When Labour inevitably, I think, win the next general election, whenever that is, and it has to be before January 2025, we're going to have just come out of a quite long and deep, uh, quite long um, and but relatively shallow recession on the back of a decade of really stagnant economic growth. And so there's, there's just not going to be money to change anything. I think we're looking at a wasted decade for Britain, really, now. In the 2010s, it was really cheap to borrow and we chose to cut capital uh, spending. We chose not to build more housing. We chose not to confront climate change. We chose not to confront our generational crisis and the pressure that that puts on public services. And now we're in the next decade, a decade of high inflation, of higher interest rates, of real downward pressure on growth. And we're, we're sort of left with very few options, but to sort of try and push forward and make things better in the 2030s. It really feels like there's not there's no real change that you could make really soon that would improve things because there's there's no money and there's so many structural problems in the UK now. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Herd Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Jack Rawls joining us. That sounds bleak. 
for uh, those of us, look, we got our own best in America. I'm not going to pretend like we don't, especially with what's going on in Congress right now. And we're in a presidential election cycle for 2024 ourselves. So we'll, we will share some some guffaws if you want to send them our way, to be fair. What does and doesn't break through media, especially inter, uh, across the pond here? What's a few things for us, maybe the international audience, the American audience, or even the British audience, what should we be watching for beyond the headlines, beyond just PMQs, beyond just the nurses' strikes and the rail strikes? What's a couple of things we should be watching for as this year starts to unfold? Is it maybe having the, the election early? Is it maybe a new leader rising up through the ranks? What are you watching for that we should be watching in the headlines underneath all the noise? I think what's really interesting at the moment is, is Brexit, which has been out of the news for a couple of years now since we left the European Union. But what's really interesting now is people are turning against it here. We sort of have nearly 60% of the population saying that it was a mistake to leave the European Union and only around a quarter of the population saying that they think Brexit's going great. And we know from sort of trade figures that we're one of the only countries, uh, one of the only major economies where our levels of international trade haven't recovered from before the pandemic. And it's been long enough since we came out of COVID lockdowns now that we can sort of say that 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 might have something to do with Brexit. We've got problems at the borders. We've got problems in Northern Ireland. You know, the Northern Irish protocol still isn't sorted out. And I think for a, for a long time, the kind of Brexit wars was like an aspect of the culture wars and it was a real 50-50 split. Now it feels like people are decisively turning away from Brexit or certainly this hard detached view of Brexit and are actually more in favour of a closer relationship with Europe. And I think that will have an interesting effect on politics because the Conservatives have massively tied themselves to the, the strongest, hardest form of Brexit possible. But Labour have also kind of become a party of Brexit as well. Since the last general election, they of, you know, they're saying, well, we're not going to join the EU. We just want to make Brexit work. We don't want to get that much closer to Europe. And so I think that's the interesting dynamic is what effect will that have on British politics as that stops being um, as the kind of the 50-50 divide between Remainers and Leavers here stops being a thing. And instead, people increasingly are not necessarily wanting to rejoin the EU, but are really dissatisfied with how Brexit has turned out. Yeah, Jack Harlow joining us. Let's be adults here, though. That sentiment and undoing Brexit after the decade of getting to Brexit, that's two very different things. And plus, that's not up to just the UK anymore. We saw what the EU did since Britain and the UK has left. They're not exactly going to gift wrap a basket full of provisions for you to come back either. That could be even worse of a situation. There's a lot of mess there if they ever decide to try to go back down that hallway again. I wonder how much taste there would be for that if they actually tried to do it. Yeah, I think that that's that's one of the big barriers is that, I, I mean, if I were the EU, I wouldn't really want us back at this point. And and I don't I don't think there's much suggestion that we'd go in to Europe. Well, they want you back, but they're going to want you on your knees crawling back. Yeah, well, and economically, everything's going to be 70-30 their way, which I'm not sure that really fixes anything for the UK. I'm just being real about it. Like, mm -hmm. if I was them, I'd do it too. It's like, sure, we'll have you back, but everything's going to be in our favor this time. Yeah, and they'd want us to join the Euro and, and possibly Schengen as well. So it would be, we would lose a lot of the advantages we had last time we remembered the EU. But what I think could happen is there could be a move towards sort of a, a form of associate membership. So joining, trying to join the single market. So rather than going back into the EU, just having a closer relationship with Europe's institutions. Again, the terms that Europe might demand from us if we tried to do that might be too high a price to pay. But I think there is an increasing 
sort of understanding in Britain that maybe Brexit, either Brexit was a mistake or we've just messed Brexit up really badly. I think that's increasingly becoming the consensus here. Yeah. Interesting times we live in. My friend for our friends across the pond, Jack Rowlett, one of our great Young Voices contributors. He's a writer and commentary. He's all over the place. Great talking to you. Before we get you back again, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you got going on and how they can follow you until we talk to you again on Her Tell, my friend. So you can find me on Twitter at Jack underscore nostalgic. And you can find all my articles there, all my latest writing, latest appearances on British television and radio as well. And keep up to date with my thoughts on British and global politics. Yep. There's a lot of stuff on housing, which is really important stuff to pay attention to, because I know we all got sick of infrastructure, but that's the infrastructure stuff that matters. Pay attention to it. Jack Rowlett, thank you so much for the time, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, he's back. Benjamin Ianian. He is a graduate of the University of Minnesota, but we are not going to hold that against him for the purposes of this conversation. Widely published writer, uh, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Yahoo News, all over the place. He's been here before. Ben, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Great. I want to re-up something that we actually talked about back uh, back the end of last year. You had written a piece in the fall, I think it was October, November, in Spectator about um, and it's one of the great titles, by the way, the urge to legislate lives loudly within politicians. I'm just going to nutshell the piece. We're going to link to the whole thing. But you were basically talking about things like legislating by emergency, legislating by deadlines, you know, uh, never letting a crisis go to waste, this kind of thing. And then how that juxtaposes, <laughs> how that juxtapositions against the mundane stuff that really matters, but kind of flies under the radar. Nobody pays attention to. The reason I want to re-up it is not just because we have a new Congress in session, but most of the state legislatures or assemblies or House of Delegates or whatever different states have, most of those are in session now. The same principles that we talk about with Congress and the Senate should be applied to these legislative branches and state senates, but we're not paying attention to that with our nationalized media, are we? No, and I mean, national media definitely focuses on um, our federal legislative branches more. And if you want to know what your state legislature is doing, you probably have to read local news unless um, what those state legislative bodies are doing um, affects their party's narrative as a whole. You know, when states were changing their voting rules, that was national media, um, things of that nature will make its way into national news but you're you're completely right the national news media really does not give as much attention to our state legis legislative bodies benjamin ianian joining us here's the thing when you get to a state legislature they're all different this is where national media and the death of local media or at least the diminishment of it really hurts because it's hard to tell how they do things you know are they railroading stuff are they ignoring stuff are they legislating by an emergency how do they handle an emergency like a natural disaster or how they handled COVID or things like that these are the nuances on how we should be judging whether a legislative body is functioning correctly or not 
And when we get tied up in the things you're just talking about, we aren't doing that. No, I, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think many of, you know, my friends, I'm from uh, Virginia. I'm down here in Florida right now, but most of the people I know back home couldn't, you know, tell you the first thing about their state legislature. They don't know, you know, exactly how they've handled certain crises. There's certain things that they could talk about. You know, we all looked around and saw what restrictions were in place during, you know, the COVID-19, you know, scare, especially you know, at the height of the pandemic. We could see, you know, how how things were really being handled right outside of our front door. But besides that, um, people, at least where I'm from, um, don't necessarily pay much attention to the local news or to their local legislatures. And I think it's a real problem because a lot of people assume that, you know, the federal government is what decides everything in our lives. And to be fair, as the federal government usurps greater and greater power um, over the country as a whole, it is somewhat true that, you know, what they do matters most. Um, but it, it's still really important to know what your you know local lawmaking body is up to. Yeah, Benjamin Ianian joining us. You used the example of um, the Roe v. Wade being overturned, taking out the actual argument over abortion, because that's those are ruts that are well grooved in now. This was a real teaching moment, though, I think, because it was baffling to some. I kind of expected it to happen this way. Folks really didn't understand a lot of the process here. They didn't understand, I guess, because we just buzzworded it so long that the Supreme Court's going to rule and then all these state legislatures are going to have to deal with this issue. And a lot of them had already previously done it and some already had it on the books. But the process there revealed exactly what we're talking about. We have this hot button national issue that went for 40 years, one of the most contentious issues we have in politics. And it's like people completely forgot that their state and local legislatures were going to have a big hand in it once that happened. Yeah, and there was a huge, you know, cry that, you know, certain states moved um, to have, you know, certain rules um, regarding abortion. And then um, then there were calls to override all of that at the federal level level and try and codify Roe v. Wade with a, a law, um, which um, Congress does not have the authority to do. Um, and so people completely forgot and seemed, you know, they were incredulous that state legislatures, that localities were going to be the ones that played a big hand in, you know, quote unquote, United States abortion policy. But, you know, it'll be state by state. Um, a lot of people didn't understand that and weren't expecting it. And I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think people didn't quite um, understand that because for decades um, we had a, a court decision that you know, said that, you know, abortion um, is a woman's right at the time and people have a right to privacy. Um, and so I don't think people expected that to necessarily be changed. There were, I guess, you know, you could argue half the aisle maybe expected it to be exchanged at, changed at one point and the other half never expected it to change. Um, but there wasn't a lot of forward thinking about, OK, what would happen um, in the event that a new court would review really the merits of that case and overturn it and what would that mean and so it seemed like a lot of people were caught off guard um, that once roe v wade was overturned that the states were going to be the main um rulemaking um modalities 
for abortion policy and that the federal government was really their hands were tied. There were calls, again, to codify Roe v. Wade. Uh, it's pretty clear the Constitution does not give Congress the authority to do so. Um, and I do want to point out um, that earlier you talked about, you know, not letting a crisis go to waste is, uh, is you know, a big theme in all of this. And Joe Biden made the case that, you know, the filibuster, there should be an exception to the filibuster if there were attempts to codify Roe v. Wade. So not only were our political leaders in response to um, a contentious issue wanting the legislative body to do something they didn't have the authority to do, they also wanted to stampede over a very necessary rule, in my opinion. Now, the, the filibuster can certainly get annoying when people get up and talk for, you know, God knows how long. Um, and just kill a bill that way. But it is an important check on, you know, momentary impassioned federal majorities. Um, and so I, I, I think um, these things really need to be thought through better when there is a contentious issue out there. Benjamin Ianian join us. Here's another thing, and I kind of touched on it, but I don't want to gloss over it. I haven't seen, whether it's the House of Representatives or the Senate at the national level or House of Delegates or Assemblies or whatever your state has or state senates, I haven't seen a real good sitting down and reviewing of what these bodies did during COVID and what they should do to prepare for the next crisis. I haven't seen it. I've heard some words. I've seen people talk about it. But as I've kind of watched these legislative sessions open up, I see a lot of the same issues, and not that those don't need addressed, but I haven't seen any real soul searching in these legislative bodies about how they handled that crisis and what they should do differently. I think this is a glaring problem that we do not seem to have legislative bodies that do you know, self-correction very well, and the apathy of the people to make them do that. This is a problem. Yeah, and well, and think, you know, politicians, what what do we see today from them um, in the media? What would, what do we see from them on Twitter? We see them constantly tooting their own horn, talking about how great they are and how, you know, they have done a great job with the power that they have and actually sitting down and having a reflection on the actions that they've taken. I mean, that requires humility. That's going to require um, admitting to, you know, missteps, to poor decisions, to things that didn't turn out correctly. Um, but that's not the nature of the beast right now in politics. What we have is, um, it seems, you know, an electorate, an electorate that is very divided. Um, and so when they're very divided, they tend to really back the team that seems to be speaking to them, either the Democrats or the Republicans. And so to continue to keep their support and fuel um, their hatred towards the other side, politicians are going to constantly be trying to make it look as if they've made all the right decisions. They couldn't have done anything different. Um, and so there's really not a whole lot of incentive when the when the electorate, you know, doesn't want 
to believe that, you know, a politician from their party could have made grave mistakes um, and missteps during, you know, the pandemic to um, there's not a lot of incentive for those politicians to say, you know what, guys, let's take a look at what we did. You know, did we, you know, respond to this crisis the right way? And if not, what do we need to change next time? There's just there's not a lot of appetite. I think you use the word apathy. Um, really well um, from, you know, voters. There's not um, a lot of push for them to do this. And so politicians are continuing to feed people, you know, what they want to hear. They, they want to hear that the guy they voted for, the team that they're on, the jersey that they wear, um, they got it right and that they have nothing to regret. Yeah, Benjamin Ianian. So how do we change the conversation on that? We're not going to change human nature. That's undefeated. We understand that politics is uh, much like flowing water. It's always going to take the path of least resistance to get where it's going. There's a lot of gravity involved in politics. That's not going to change. We can change how we talk about it. We can change how we cover it. We can change how we discuss it on things like social media. How do we start that? Is it a terminology thing? Is it a nomenclature thing? Is it? I don't think just pointing out hypocrisy really changes hypocrisy one little bit. That's just a life lesson. And I think history backs me up on that. So how do we talk about this in a little bit better way? I think that terminology, I mean, is a big part. We need to put things in terms that, you know, people can, you know, really, you know, grasp and that lights a fire under them. You know, Friedrich Hayek point, you know, said that you need, and this is not a direct quote, but um, he, you know, wrote this idea that you need to, put old truths in modern terms for them to carry on. Um, and so there may be issues, you know, 50 years ago um, that people that the citizenry would have been plugged into, you know, hypocrisy um, and, um, you know, deception, fraud, corruption. Um, there may have been a time where people were more in tune to what their local governing bodies were doing. Um, but today we don't seem to be. We seem to be, you know, distracted by the national news. You know, there's always a massive story that's supposed to be the end all be all of whether or not our country survives the day. Um, and people are really caught up in all of that stuff. And it's really hard to, to, to keep up with your local legislature. And then you hear the word, you know, corruption um, a lot. You hear, you know, we call politicians hypocrites. At the end of the day, those words, they swirl around every single day. Um, and at a certain point, they start to lose their punch. Um, and so when you hear corruption, a lot of times people are going to go, oh, yeah, I mean, it's politics. There's going to be corruption. It's like there needs to be it needs to be put in a different way to people to make them care. I think the best way to do it is in a more straightforward way. We need people to understand like how it truly affects them individually um, because at the end of the day we are you know self-interested beings we have the capability to you know act altruistically um, but it's never possible for us to care about you know um, the swaths of people more than we necessarily care about ourselves um, when in terms of some of these issues and so um, it's like Adam Smith's um, quote, you know, you don't expect your dinner out of the benevolence of the butcher, um, but instead out of the regard to his own self-interest. That butcher might care about you, but he brings you your dinner because you paid him for it. And so we need to tell, show people how these things actually affect them directly 
And if we can do that, I think it will take um, some different terminology instead of just throwing buzzwords around. Um, I think then people would start to care more. Yeah, I think so too. But unfortunately, usually it takes something bad to happen to get folks to care about government. We'll try to do a little better on that. Benjamin Ianian, good friend of ours. Good to see you again, buddy. Let folks know what you got going on and where they can keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again. Yeah, as you can follow me on Twitter, um, at Benjamin Ianian or on Instagram at BIANian13. Uh, that's where I post all my links to articles and co great conversations with people like Andrew. Um, and so go follow me there and uh, you can keep up with my writings through that. All right. You're already in the rotation. You don't have to suck up about it, buddy. But I do appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Benjamin Ianian, another one of our great Young Voices contributor. Keep up with all him with the links. We'll talk to you again soon, my friend. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, sir. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurtel Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.